Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Structure and Function podcast. Uh, I'm Dr. Christopher Philp, and I'm a research fellow in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at the University of Nottingham in the UK. I'm very pleased to welcome our guest speaker today, returning to the podcast, Jay Ella. Say hello, Jay. Hi. <laughs> welcome <me> back. back. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Jay is an author and an expert who specializes in behaviors that cause imbalance, disengagement, and distraction. So previously on the podcast, Jay and Dr. O'Sullivan from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health discussed energy and state of mind. So continuing on with the theme of work-life balance today, on the podcast, we'll be talking about something that everyone encounters at some point in their career, whether in academia or in general in a professional setting, is having difficult conversations. Now, Jay, I'm sure you are much more clued up on the mechanics of this than I am. So how would you yourself define an uncomfortable conversation? Yeah, so an uncomfortable conversation is one in which our needs are not being met, honored, or respected. And the thing that's a little tricky about these uncomfortable conversations is a lot of times when we think about conversations, we think only about our external conversations we're having with other people. These conversations where our needs are not being met, honored, or respected can also be conversations we're not having with ourselves that therefore kind of impact the conversation we're having with others. And these uncomfortable conversations are also ones that require us to be vulnerable and authentic, to really get to the, the core of our truth and the core of our values and how we're speaking those or sometimes not speaking those. Okay, so there are a few a few points you brought up there, actually, that would be really interesting to talk about. So when you say our personal needs are not being met, would this be through um, a personal effect in your own personal life, or could it be something that somebody said that influenced or rubs up your personality the wrong way? Is that the sort of... Yeah, both actually. Okay. So it could be um, our need around like integrity is not being met, our need around respect, our need around being honored, or even sometimes just, just being loved or appreciated. So um, these needs follow us as humans, whether we're in our what we would call our personal life or we're in our professional life. That transitions on quite nicely, actually, to why why do you think it's so hard to have these uncomfortable conversations in especially an academic environment but also in general in the professional setting yeah so i think it boils down to three main things um where a lot of these subcategories kind of boil up to these three main principles and and i'll, I'll address the principles and we can talk about each one so um the number one i believe is is fear and this can be we're fearful of having the actual uncomfortable conversation because we don't want to be rejected or we don't want to um, be perceived as, as, as failing. And so we don't want our ideas rejected, we don't want our creativity rejected, or we don't want to fail in our ability to have this uncomfortable conversation or be perceived to be kind of weak or vulnerable, which in a professional setting and, of course, academia where it's highly competitive, um, our fear of not being good enough can a lot of times permeate or, or prevent us from having these uncomfortable conversations. And so we have a conversation that might not be the full conversation because fear is kind of in the driver's seat. So that's one of the um, one of the elements. And the other one is sometimes we don't know ourselves. 
the actual conversation that we want to have. And this sounds a little goofy at first when you think about it. We don't know the full conversation we want to have because most times in, in our professional settings, we are so inundated with so much and so many things to do in this kind of culture of busyness that we haven't had the proper time to really reflect on how it is we really feel to get to our core and our center and say, what do I really want to say here? So sometimes we don't have the conversation or we're prevented from having this uncomfortable conversation because a lot of times we're not really clear ourselves because we haven't had that reflection time. And then the element that supports both these, the third principle or the third um, issue is kind of lack of tools or lack of practice. Many of us are not taught how to have these uncomfortable conversations for whatever reason. That's a whole separate podcast in and of itself to talk about why we are kind of lacking as a society these, these communication tools to have these authentic, vulnerable conversations. And so it also boils down to kind of a tool. What are the tools to have these conversations? And then the confidence to practice having these conversations where we can say something uncomfortable, say something where we know someone might not like or they might reject what we're saying, but to have the confidence that it will be okay to have that conversation and our careers are not going to be jeopardized, our reputation is not going to be jeopardized. So then it becomes about tools and practice. I can especially empathize myself with the first point you brought up, which is the fear of being uncomfortable and having that conversation where you might, on a personal level, feel like you are failing. Now, in my personal life, I have some of the best friends I could ask for and this never crops up in my personal life because in a way you are much more open with your friends you feel free to bounce ideas off each other where you are all on the same standing even though they are also my peers at work when it's brought into a professional setting I can see how especially in front of more senior people it may feel scary to have uncomfortable conversations mm-hmm. in front of your superiors. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that you could probably elaborate on that, especially from the professional setting, more. Yeah, it's paralyzing to put ourselves out there. It takes courage and we have to risk being seen as um, being seen as maybe someone who might have a silly idea or someone who might have a brilliant idea, but a lot of times before we express it, we actually don't know how it's going to land. And so that fear of protecting our reputation or wanting to be good enough and wanting to be perceived a certain way in the professional setting oftentimes gets in the way of truly expressing. And this goes back to a core principle of of all relationships, which is trust. And so when we have a higher level of trust in the workplace on these professional teams where we know we we can safely put an idea out there that might just be a silly or what sometimes people call kind of a garbage idea in like a brainstorming setting, but we know that our credibility and our reputations not going to be damaged by our by risking being vulnerable and putting something new and fresh out there where those, that trust is already established more deeply in our personal relationships. And so where we see teams that have higher levels of trust, we see the level of conversation, the level of communication is a lot more sophisticated and a lot more comfortable. And it doesn't mean they're not dealing with uncomfortable issues. It just means they have a higher level of trust built in that it's okay to expose myself 
and my career is not going to be damaged, my reputation is not going to be damaged. And in fact, the opposite might happen. People might see me more as a thought leader because I'm willing to put it out there. I'm willing to say something that might be perceived as, as stupid or unconventional or silly. And so they're very closely closely um, connected to, to trust at the core issue. And, and we can't be vulnerable if we don't feel the trust with the people we're, we're putting these ideas out there with. I think a really good example of this, especially from um, a young research fellow's point of view, is actually migrating from being a PhD student and being quite afraid to put your ideas out there and to sort of assert your knowledge, especially when you've written your thesis, you've become an expert in your own specific field. It's progressing from that into the wider world of academia and actually believing in yourself and your own abilities that you have been trained to such a standard that your idea is just as valid as someone else's. I think that sort of overcoming that fear of failure is part of being uh, a good scientist that you accept that you could be wrong or when it comes to laboratory work a lot of stuff's not going to work but it's just having the ability to rationalize not failure but it allows you to ask different questions than when you started if your data is negative for example i think that's a very important point absolutely and being able to have the uncomfortable conversation, much in the way that you just described that, where we're talking to our peers in the workplace as human to human and say, hey, this might not work, this might not pan out, or this, you might completely disagree or reject this idea or notion, but I want to share something with you because this is what I've been thinking about. And when we can have the conversation on more of a human level in the workplace, it really invites a deeper more meaningful, more trusting work culture and environment in which we might be able to experience or explore a topic in a way that we couldn't before if we were talking fear to fear. But when we're talking open to, when we're talking and one person's open and the other person's open, we're going to actually talk about the subject in a different way than we would if we were both talking at the level of fear. That leads into one of the most um, kind of common barriers in having these conversations is is we're not having the actual real conversation because <laughs> we get stuck in fear and so we stunt ourselves. So we get caught almost off guard with we're trying to articulate something yet we can't quite find the words to express what we want. That's right because we either haven't had the time to truly reflect and say, this is what I feel, this is what I want to express, this is my thought. And, and this is where I like to point out uh, Marshall Rosenberg's work here on nonviolent communication. And I think his work is such a great example in how we can transform workplaces because when we're having these conversations, there's kind of four elements he breaks it down into. And we can talk about our thoughts, we can talk about our feelings, and then we talk about observations, and then lastly, we, we address needs. And many times, the conversation doesn't reach the full level um, because either the speaker or the receiver is not clear either what they need or what they're trying to express. And so the conversation, I call it a halfway conversations. And so a lot of times in the workplace, we're having a halfway conversation especially because at work we need to have our needs met. We need someone to do something for us or we need to do something for someone else. That's kind of the, the transaction at work, right, where we're, we're, we have needs and others have needs on us or of us. 
But many times we don't know how to fully express those needs because we're scared to say what we need. It's like that fear thing comes in again. And so we don't really say what we need. (laughs) And so we're almost having the wrong conversation because we're not fully identifying this is what I think or this is what I feel and this is what is needed here. So then we're, we're, we're at the action level in a halfway sense where we're, we're, we're in action, maybe we're working on a project, but because the full needs of the team haven't been expressed on that project, we're not actually addressing the root issue. We're kind of halfway addressing it. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, especially from a project management perspective, yeah. I currently manage multiple different projects. So especially if I find sometimes I get overwhelmed by the sheer amount of work that he's doing. Mm-hmm. I can't quite, as you said, I need to go away, sit down and reflect on what I need, and then go and have a conversation with the PI that is much more rational. Because sometimes we can get uh, upset or and just take things slightly out of context, especially. And there, I think, lies in the we don't quite know what we want to say because other things are clouding our judgment as well. Yes, and this is where I get so passionate about this, because we want to, like, I, I feel like I, I part of what I do professionally is I help people slow down so they can speed up. And when we're, we're not in the habit of in the conversation saying, wait, you know what, I need some time to reflect on this. Can I get back to you by the end of the day or tomorrow? Because I'm not really sure how I want to respond to this or what we need to do as a team to move this forward. Instead, we get stuck in this habitual pattern where we just, we might agree to something in the moment that we know where our team's not going to be able to really complete, but we'll say yes in the moment. And then this is where it gets into creating more stress because now I have to go back. I have my to-do list is longer because now I have to go back and tell this person, hey, we're not actually going to be able to really do this. And now I know I'm going to have to disappoint them. Instead of interrupting that pattern and saying, wait, let's stop this train, let's slow down and really think about this to save us time from undoing or having to redo things later because we got caught in the habitual pattern of of being busy because that's kind of the current behavior expectation in the workplace is that we're not in the habit of pausing and reflecting enough to see what the real conversation is there to have, and then practice having that conversation. So we get stuck in this loop that's not productive for anyone. So when we don't quite know what conversation we want to have, Mm -hmm. as you said, we have a lack of tools regarding communication skills, maybe between colleagues or just a lack of practice in having these conversations, which we might be quite fluent with, with our friends, with our family. But in the professional setting, um, could you give us some sort of examples of tools we might be able to use that would impact these conversations in a very positive way? Yeah, so I, I think there, there's kind of five five tools or tips I like to give people here when they start thinking about how they want to shift the way they're having conversations and, and be able to have some of these more uncomfortable conversations. And the first one um, boils down to what I call the, the skill of awareness. And the skill of awareness is your ability to see the world and how you show up in it and then what your actions and words are in relation to that. And so when we have awareness around our thoughts, what is it that you really want to say? What is it I'm about to say? And is it true? Now, that's the the golden nugget part there, is what I'm about to say true. And it's not that everyone's running around lying and telling mistruths. It's that, is this thought complete? Is this really fully what I want to say? If I say yes, I'm going to be able to deliver that. Is that true? Because you know you have five other projects 
that are going to prevent you from doing that. So can you interrupt the process before you even before it even comes out of your mouth? So is what I'm about to say true? Um, that's one of the, the number one principles to, to think about in, in kind of shifting the behavior, shifting the pattern here. Right. Have awareness around the thought in your head is about what I'm about to say true. And can I really can I really do this? And then the second issue that's the, the second tip that's that's really closely related to this is is thinking about the conversation in terms of what is the actual need here? What do I what do I need in this moment? If I'm going to make a request or if someone's making a request of me, what is the true need here? And kind of going back to Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, a lot of times our needs aren't fully expressed. Either we don't express them or the other person doesn't express them. So we're left to kind of guess. For example, do you just need someone to listen to your idea? Do you need someone to give you feedback? Um, do you need empathy or support or do you need you know, funding or dollars, right? What is the true need there? Sometimes we dance around asking what the need is out of, again, our fear of the need not being met. So we don't fully ask for it. So um, just to kind of recap, right, is what I'm about to say true and what is the true need here I'm expressing or what is the need of the other person? And when you're talking to the other person, you can say, hey, is this really what you need, right? Repeat back to them what you heard, which goes back to the third element is, is really listening. In our, in our fast-paced professional lives, many times we're not fully listening, listening just as much as we're not fully expressing. It's common that when we're in conversation, we're rehearsing what we're going to say to the person while they're still talking to us. So again, if we can slow that process down and really listen to their words and hear what the need is or hear what the request is, hear what the feeling or thought is, as opposed to what we're going to say to them, a lot of times that can save a lot of time in the future because you can you can say back, is this what I heard? What I the need it sounds like you're expressing is X, Y, Z. And then that way you're preventing having multiple conversations downstream because you had the full conversation in the moment. And that takes right, both, both parties, one expressing fully and the other person listening fully. And that, that is deeply connected to this idea of just being present, being in the conversation while you're in the conversation. Many times we're multitasking. And as researchers in academia, you guys probably all know logically the brain can't multitask. What it does is task swap. It goes back and forth between two, doing two things. There's no such thing as multitasking, even though we all think we can do it. It's even in like job descriptions. But multitasking doesn't serve well, especially when we're, we're in a conversation in which it is a difficult conversation because your attention is divided. And so when you can have full presence in the conversation, it's more quickly to, is what I'm thinking or about to say true? What is the actual need here? And, oh, wait, I'm not actually listening because I'm halfway looking at my, my mobile device. I'm reading an email. I'm trying to, like, you know, take notes on what you're saying instead of really being present. And then that's all supported by when you're in these conversations, knowing that you have a choice. In every single conversation you have each day, you have a choice to have the difficult conversation and, and express what is needed to be fully present, to listen, to acknowledge 
what it is you really want to say, and you have a choice. Say, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not going to have the difficult conversation right now. That's just as much of a choice as it is to say, you know what, right now I'm going to show up fully and have this conversation. And as long as you're aware of what you're choosing, so it's conscious, and then you're not surprised by it later, that can be really powerful too, is just knowing, you know what, right now I'm not fully listening, I'm not fully present, and I know I'm going to have to have this conversation later. So it's a choice, not, not something you're surprised by. Does that make sense with that last line? <laughs> yeah, well, we all know those 9 a.m. meetings when you haven't had your coffee yet, <laughs> when, you're, totally. when you're not truly present. But I, I totally agree with you. The, um, having a conversation that is less of a transactional conversation, as I would term it, rather than just trying to counter each other's points and bounce ideas, it's more about actually listening to the person and almost employing empathy to really see things from their perspective. That's right. This is where emotional, our emotional intelligence, our social emotional intelligence skills really can help us. And this is where this, this work is so complicated because, because you, this audience, you are all really, really smart people who know this. But this isn't a, a habitual pattern for most of us in the workplace because we've learned all these work patterns that are kind of contrary to what we know to be true about human behavior. And so when we can slow down, slow down, that's when we can really speed up. And so if we can slow ourselves down in the moment, in the conversation, in the day, then we're going to have less things to do later or we're going to be focused more on the right things. But it's contrary. It's very paradoxical to the way we're living. Even though we all know this to be true, it's all it goes back to our habitual patterning. It all seems to come back to uh, a a theme with all of these uh, points you've made, it all comes down to a theme of respect for the other person and their views. So could you maybe suggest some ways that, or more the consequences to our to our success if we halfway communicate, if we don't employ some of these skills and think about this emotional awareness, but what could impact our professional lives? Yeah, so I want to add something to you to what you said. So it's respect of others as much as it is, is as it is respect for yourself as well. So it definitely goes both ways there. And when we're not fully embodying this, there's some consequences um, that we can face, both professionally and personally as well. And professionally, my belief is is the the the, the biggest one is we create false perceptions that others may have of us or on us around how we're showing up when we're not fully communicating our our needs or our thoughts. People's perceptions are going to change or be built upon that. And so they might have a perception about us that is completely not true, but their perceptions are built upon our behavior and actions. So an example here is if if you keep saying yes to being able to do something that someone's asking you to do, but you know you're not going to have the capacity to do it, and so you're going to continually go back to that person and ask for more time or an extended deadline, their perception of you might be that you don't know how to manage a project or that you're um, maybe incompetent to do the task, which isn't the truth. The truth is you have four other priorities, but instead of having that conversation, you've told them you can do it. So they're going to create this false perception about you or your skills. And then related to that is these false expectations that we have on or of others um, when we're not operating with the full the full data or the full story. Um, a team might be planning to 
to um, publish a paper, for example, but the full conversation is not being had. So they have the expectation this is really going to happen, but the other person's too scared to give them the full data that this isn't going to happen. So this other team's creating this whole plan that something's going to happen without the full data of knowing it's not going to happen. So the expectations can can be false, and then that say that impacts time again, and it comes back to the the perception and the reputation element. And then the other element that also can really um, impact us professionally is this takes a lot of energy. <laughs> kind of going back to the conversation, one of our previous conversations is when we're not operating with the full the full data. It takes a lot of energy out of us to redo things or to go back and kind of continually have the same conversation or to draw it out. It can create a lot of stress and churn in the system, which then impacts right, the dynamics of the work team as well as our own kind of health and, and, and well-being and, and capacity. So there's a lot of negative impacts, um, far more negative impacts than having one tiny uncomfortable conversation, we create a lot of more downstream impact than just that one like 10 minute like, oh, this is uncomfortable. I'm going to risk being perceived as, you know, um, my fear of rejection or failure is going to come out one time in a short conversation. Instead, we create all this down downstream churn just to avoid that one uh, uncomfortable conversation. And so just thinking about it in a different way can really, really be helpful. I think especially with the presence in the media currently of uh, mental health in academia and the pressures on uh, younger investigators as well as PIs and very senior people, I think this is a very important fundamental underpinning thing, having difficult conversations and knowing how to deal with it and how to express yourself in these situations and, as you said, gain mutual respect for the people that are talking, and I think that would benefit everybody if people employed simple things to help get over these difficult conversations and issues that could have laid dormant for years even, or something's cropped up that you just need to sort of nip in the bud before it gets any worse. I think that's a a very important step on the way to at least helping with mental health in academia and in every professional setting is knowing what you want from the conversation, having the tools to express yourself and knowing that it is not personal, especially from a personal perspective in my career. I've had to remove myself from the scenario and say, okay, this person's criticizing this piece of data. I have to remind myself that, hang on a minute, they're not criticizing me as a person they're not criticizing my integrity as a scientist. They're just questioning something that it is our job to question each other. It's how we maintain our own integrity. But I think being aware of other people's intentions and just the skill of awareness can be used to improve communication. I mean, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think awareness from my perspective, is the fundamental building block skill to achieving professional and personal mastery. And awareness, again, it's so simple. It's just the ability to see the world and how you show up in it. And that includes your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, and how you're expressing those. 
And when we can create the, the disciplined mind and the discernment to be able to slow down and really see how we're showing up and what's about to come out of our mouth and ask ourselves, is it true? Is this fully what I want to express before it comes out? And then being aware in the moment when we're talking to someone else, right? These are this is just a fundamental skill that I believe ties so many things together. And it's deceptively simple to think about, but really challenging and difficult to master. And I think for me, the message, the key message that I love to share with people when I have conversations like this or when I'm speaking to groups is that it's a choice. Awareness is a choice. We all have the skill. We all have the capacity. And there are some days you're going to be able to choose to be more aware than other days. And just when we know that we can choose it, it becomes a little easier to begin to choose it and be like, oh, you know what, yesterday I wasn't very aware in that conversation or I wasn't very aware before I expressed myself. And you know what, today's a whole new day and I'm going to try again and I'm going to choose to be aware today. And just that slight shift in perception that this is a choice and it's a skill we all have and I get to choose to do it every day or choose not to do it. That little shift can can sometimes transform our ability to have, have more of these difficult conversations and shift how we're working with our teams. Do you do you personally have any tips that could make having these difficult conversations more successful? It's not something we can avoid having, unfortunately. If we could, life would be easy. But if we can guide ourselves through certain skills or certain mindfulness exercises, shall we say, what do you mm-hmm. think could make having these conversations easier? Yeah, the the number one thing the the starting place is what what is the what is the need here what am i actually trying to communicate what is the core and again this sounds really really simple but when when we look at it, start isolating a conversation and breaking it down sometimes our needs really aren't that clear they're not the same need we kind of thought it was earlier so like what is the need here do i need do i need funding do i need approval do i need respect do i need acknowledgement? Do I just need to be heard? Do I need just some empathy here? Like, what is it that I really need out of this conversation? Or what is the, the what is the request here? And so it's just really being intentional about the conversation before the conversation in many cases. And then followed with that is when we're in the conversation, understanding the difference between responding versus reacting. And reacting comes from our habitual patterning, and that's where we stay in that cycle of busy and that the, yes, I can do that, no worries, no problem, when you know you really can't. So being able to be aware and say, oh, wait, I just reacted there. I need to slow it down. I need to be thoughtful about this, and I want to respond in a different way. And responding is when we've, when we've taken the time. could be five seconds. could be five minutes. could be five hours to reflect on really what it is that we want to express. And that ability to really own what's coming out of your mouth. And again, I don't want anyone to think that I think people aren't are saying their full truth and they're they're walking around, you know, being untruthful intentionally. None of this. This is a guilt-free, judgment-free conversation. We do these things because they're habitual patterns. But being able to slow down and say, is what I'm about to say really true? Is this really the conversation I want to have? And understanding the underlying fear that might be preventing you from having the conversation is kind of the third element I'll add there. What is the fear? I'm scared that I might be made fun of because this idea is so radical. uh, They might not believe it. They might not support it. They might criticize it. Okay, 
So that's, a, that's that's the worst thing that can happen. I might feel criticized. Okay, that's my fear. That's what's holding me back. Or what's the fear? What's the fear? And then we can identify that. And sometimes it diminishes the fear and we're more able to move more fluidly into these conversations with more confidence. Actually, that was a really nice summary. Um, oh, thank I, you. Three, <laughs> I, I was going to go into a nice summary section, but I think that, that was that was just perfect. So I, I will just say a couple more things just regarding okay. some of the things we touched on earlier and how that integrates in what we've talked about later on. So the principle of awareness seems to be key here, that we are aware of what our own needs are, what the needs of the other person or people are within the conversation, and we need to clearly define them before we can have a difficult conversation that is going to be productive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Second Absolutely. of all, we need to think less in terms of a transactional conversation as we do in everyday life. We need to really listen and respond to the other person or people rather than just reacting to a, a statement or a small comment. We need to really think about what did that person mean? Is this plausible for me to do? We just need to Again, be aware of what the conversational tone is, for instance. Mm-hmm. What's really occurring and what's really happening. And thirdly is really understanding underlying fear of uh, even throughout any conversation, what is stopping you from asking what you want to, what is stopping the other person expressing what they truly need. It all sort of circularly comes back again to mutual respect. Mutual respect, and I got to add one more time, the self-respect as well. These conversations are internal and external, and the respect is internal and external as well. Actually, this conversation even between us has been really helpful for for me personally, thinking about all the situations where I've been in, and I wish I'd have truly been aware and been mindful about the situation, and uh, I, I'm a capital offender when it comes to reacting rather than responding and thinking, <laughs> taking time to think about what I've what I've said. But again, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Jay. It's been very enlightening for me and I'm hoping for all our listeners too. Thank you so much. And and the beautiful thing is remember you get a choice every time, every conversation there's a choice. So this is a judgment free, guilt free practice that we can all all partake in, right? You get a choice each time you have a conversation. So thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to to share this knowledge with this community. Again, thank you, Jay. And we will hopefully see you on the next episode. Cheers.